This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Hey, everybody. This is Vikram Iyer, host of the American Enough podcast on the Mouth Media Network. Right now, perhaps more than ever, if you're angry, if you're sad, if you feel divided, if you feel hungry, make sure that you quell all of your hangry cures by going and registering to vote. If you're curious about where to sign up, If you're curious about how to find your polling location, make sure to visit vote.org. It's not about politics. This is about your voice. And I think everyone should have a voice. If you go to vote.org right now, you'll be able to figure out exactly where your polling location is, how to make sure that you cast a vote by election day. And if you're out of town or if you're not nearby your polling site, they'll help you with that too. Make sure to sign up at www.vote.org. .org and stay tuned for your post-election day result recap on the American Enough podcast wherever you pod. On a Wednesday night in the first week of October, a federal judge on the west coast of the United States actually put a hold on the Trump administration's plans to stop renewing the legal status of 300,000 people living in the US from El Salvador, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Sudan. All four countries were actually set to lose temporary protected status over the next year, meaning that immigrants who had lived in the U.S. for years and often decades would be forced to leave or risk deportation, according to the Trump administration. The more than 1,000 Sudanese living in the U.S. with temporary protected status, for example, were set to lose their legal status just in a month on November 2, 2018. The ruling is a preliminary injunction, and it holds the status quo in place, meaning it holds off Trump administration action until the courts have issued a final rule in the case of Ramos v. Nielsen on whether the Trump administration violated the law in the first place. But the Wednesday ruling also indicated that Judge Edward Chen of the Northern District of California was likely to rule against the administration in his final analysis, too. The events of what happened in that court on the west coast of the U.S. are not isolated to California alone. From cities ranging from Los Angeles to Chicago to New York City to Miami, time and time again, the courts, local governments, even state governments, governors, and state representatives have used their power, their bully pulpit, and the rule of law to challenge a cascading tidal wave of Trump administration actions focused on American identity by way of wedging American citizens against those immigrants that may very well be American in heart, mind, and all but a piece of paper. Joining us today on the podcast is Simi Chowdhury, who leads up the Office of New Americans on behalf of Chicago's Mayor Rahm Emanuel. In her perch from the city of Chicago, they have, as a city, not only taken a proactive stance to rebuke several stances of this administration, but have also made proactive attempts to ensure that all Americans and all residents of Chicago feel welcome and can feel that their own sense of American identity can actually be headed off by embracing things like new ID cards for undocumented citizens, by going after claims of withdrawing funding for sanctuary cities from the Trump White House, and generally making sure that all Americans, whether old, new, native, indigenous, or beyond, actually have a sense of home right there in the city of Chicago. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. 
coming on the heels of a time in which more and more cities are taking an active role against the federal government, Simi helps lead this effort from the tip of the spear, not just from the office, but also on behalf of the policy priorities of the Emanuel administration. Simi, thank you so much for joining American and Up. Thank you for having me. So I, I, I wanted to start by, by querying how um, you view the policy priorities and immigration priorities um, for a sitting mayor. Obviously, the city of Chicago um, is one of the largest cities within the United States and has boasted an incredible tapestry of an immigrant population. Um, but but also, I would imagine that the, the efforts at which you both balance protecting and providing services for immigrants within the community and the city of Chicago um, have taken a different turn in the past couple of years, especially with more proactive stances standing up against this White House. Do you feel that there's been a shift in the way that uh, your office actually invests in the immigrant community, or is that balance of services and standing up for policies you believe in versus shutting down ones that you don't always sort of been the operating ethos or mandate of that office? Yeah, uh, I I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, so certainly, uh, I would say, you know, without beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's been a significant shift considering that uh, during this time, as the landscape for immigrants and refugees alike is currently evolving and changing, uh, you know, as you noted earlier, there's one day you have temporary protected status, the next day you don't. Um, one day DACA is available as a form of legal relief for immigrant youth across the country, the next day DACA has been rescinded. So there's certainly been a shift in so much that our energy and our policy priorities must focus on the immediate need. Uh, whereas before, perhaps there was more room for thinking innovatively, thinking creatively, and certainly thinking proactively. The unfortunate uh, side effect uh, and the unfortunate consequences of this current federal administration is that it certainly puts cities like ours on the defense, where we are in a place where we're constantly having to defend basic values that should be afforded to every U.S. Uh, um, born individual, um, th those people who are not born in the United States. I struggle using this term American only because of the fact that um, it implies that uh, America is only a place for, um, uh, is a dis distinction for uh, those who live in the United States, but certainly as uh, those people who are from South America and people like myself who've been, who are born in South America get challenged by this this notion of America as being a describer for the identity. And so uh, uh, there's really no comparable to, for example, using the term in Spanish, Estadounidense, uh, which means someone from the United States. And so um, what I, what I want to emphasize is that the truth of the matter is that it's certainly, you know, a, an, uh, a part of and parcel of our value system that every single person who resides in the city of Chicago has basic rights that are afforded to them. And in this current presidential administration, there's been a constant uh, you know, attack on those who don't look a particular way or don't um, you know, uh, live their lives in a way that the Trump administration deems uh, agreeable. And so certainly, you know, I would say, 
from my vantage point as someone who works for the city of Chicago and uh, you know, someone who works very closely with my counterparts in other cities, that we're constantly in a battle of defending what we otherwise shouldn't have to defend. Uh, and it has much to do with the current administration's priorities, the current presidential administration's priorities to undermine and attack uh, populations that have been disenfranchised for far too long. And I mean, particularly leading immigrant affairs for a city as big as Chicago, uh, you've likely seen a a whole range of not only um, backgrounds and and colors and creeds and and perspectives, um, just given how diverse the city of Chicago actually is. Um, but I'm sure you've also seen a sentiment and mood shift over the last couple of years, particularly as you know threats of rescinding DACA, um, threats of the Muslim ban and the broader travel plan, plan um, threats of um, even families or next of kin who take in children separated at the border um, are also purportedly being targeted uh, by ICE and other immigrant authorities. How has that, just from kind of an emotional read of where you see the mood of the city lying today, has that shifted over time? Is there a sense of security um, that still exists as the city of Chicago aims to still embrace uh, new Americans and all Americans? Or have you noticed like a heightened need, um, particularly as someone that oversees um, immigrant outreach and engagement and policy to try and provide a sense of comfort to an otherwise nervous uh, set of community members? Certainly. So again, I think it's both of these elements are taking place at the same time. So, you know, shortly after, uh, you know, it's going to be exactly two years now, but, you know, uh, Back in November in 2016, after the results of the presidential election, I had been involved in a number of community stakeholder meetings, roundtables that were coming together within the spur of the moment, uh, where there was a dire need that was clearly articulated that we are going to, as vulnerable populations, whose legal relief is going to be challenged, whose ability to stay in the United States is going to be challenged uh, and and continuously undermined, we will need legal services. And so within a very short period of time, uh, even um, though in the city of Chicago, our budgeting season is actually during the month of October, so it's taking place right now. But even though our budgeting season had elapsed, uh, Mayor Emanuel had appropriated $1.3 million in December of 2016 towards what would become our, the city's first ever legal protection fund. It's funding that is allocated specifically so that every immigrant and refugee in the city of Chicago will get a legal screening. Because what's so crucial is that every everybody who, who uh, is here under any kind of um, legal relief program, whether it's a uh, visa, whether it's um, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, uh, whether it's TPS, is, is able to sit with a um, accredited uh, and um, authorized immigration attorney so that they have a full-on understanding of what options are available to them. And even for that individual who is undocumented, who unfortunately by the uh, presidential administration doesn't have rights, they must know that there are very basic rights, um, and that's why we create um, in partnership with our, our uh, community-based organizations and legal service organizations, Know Your Rights workshops. 
so that it's very important um, that every individual is aware that at the very um, base, uh, base level, uh, know whether there is an encounter with Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, if that were to ever happen, that this individual is aware that they have the right to speak to a lawyer, that their um, that their access to a, a particular uh, location is not granted unless there is a warrant issued by a judge. These are very basic, uh, you know, very basic kind of rights that are afforded to everybody regardless of your status. And so, in 2017, for example, through our Legal Protection Fund and through the great work of our partnering organizations, 25,000 immigrants and refugees were serviced through um, the Legal Protection Fund and, uh, and a thousand legal screenings took place. And so um, that work in and of itself demonstrates the dire need of um, programs like this. And then because the program was so successful to the credit of our partners, we were able to reappropriate the funding in 2018 and we look forward to doing the same thing in the following years to come. And so I think there's that part, which I, I believe answers one part of your question. And, and at the same time, you know, um, my office, our underarching principle and mission of the office is that the, Chicago is the most welcoming city to immigrants and refugees alike, is the most welcoming city uh, through our principles, through our um, programs, and in practice. And so we, everything that we do uh, has to reinforce that mission. And I think that while we have very successful programs like the Legal Protection Fund that are in place that are um, tremendously valuable to our, to our target population, it is also incumbent upon us that the community that is very anxious um, and completely substantiated in their anxiety is reassured on every, um, in every um, you know, a sort of touch point that we have, whether it be through community engagement opportunities, whether it be through um, public service announcements. So, so we have certainly doubled down on reinforcing these values that every single person who enters into our city has every right to live their life in the same way that a native-born individual has and that all of these rights are afforded to you and, and are reinforced by the, um, the leadership uh, of the municipality. And on that legal protection fund, just to dig in uh, a little bit, does that afford um, anyone that may have um, some sort of issue, some sort of challenge or some sort of threat um, or maybe even just a fear around um, uh, the, the status of, of their uh, presence within the city or within the country? Does it allow them to invoke kind of legal resources subsidized by the city to, to navigate those processes or is it built for like kind of a finite number of, of actions? Yeah, so um, the legal screening is completely free of cost, and it, it's always a case-by-case -case scenario. So we give um, the funding that we've appropriated, it goes to specific organizations that have it within their portfolio to provide legal services to um, the, the population that we're seeking to serve, so immigrants and refugees alike. And so it's hard to say, um, to speak across the board, because what we have um, what we have come to learn now doing this program for almost two years is that every, every case is so unique. And so in some cases, there may be that, uh, that all the services can be offered um, free of cost. And in some cases, it may be that there might be a cost that's incurred. 
but certainly, you know, through the program, there's been, uh, you know, stays on deportations that have been granted. Um, there, uh, the organization that we work with really closely uh, that that deploys the attorneys um, in Chicago is the Heartland Alliance's National Immigrant Justice Center, and they've done a phenomenal job at helping individuals who have some of the more, more severe cases um, where they are um, at a very serious and eminent threat of deportation. And, and truly, that was the, um, the uh, underpinning mission of our, of our program is that we can proactively avert a situation where someone would be um, uh, caught in uh, caught in a very precarious uh, challenge as it relates to immigration and customs enforcement, and that this individual is fully aware of what they can and can't do, and um, have most importantly access to a lawyer. Uh, and um, this is, I think, so crucial. And, and um, I have a couple of my colleagues and. And a few other cities have been doing similar programs as well, have been overseeing similar programs. But, you know, what's unfortunate is that in big cities like ours, when a vulnerable population becomes that much more vulnerable based on what's happening at the national level, uh, you know, especially given that the vulnerabilities can be sort of preyed on by, un by um, notario fraud, otherwise known as an unauthorized practice of law. It is so crucial that cities are taking the initiative to, uh, to um, fight against that because what happens is that um, vulnerable populations will then seek bad immigration service. And so one of the goals as well under our Legal Protection Fund is that you as an individual, as a um, member of our community, as uh, someone who resides in our city is getting is getting the best legal service that you that can be afforded to you at a very nominal cost and at the very basic level you're getting a, a legal screening completely free of cost and so the way that we've made that accessible as well is by the know your rights workshops that I mentioned earlier and that also that there's clinics that are legal clinics that are taking place at our Chicago community colleges at our Chicago public schools, at different not-for-profit organizations across the city. And I don't know that I mentioned this earlier, Vikram, but um, the city of Chicago also uh, has a welcoming city ordinance, which is what makes us uh, know, to be known as a so-called sanctuary city. And so why that's important to our conversation is that every resource that and every service that is offered by the city of Chicago is granted to every single resident of the city of Chicago, regardless of immigration status. And so that's codified law. And that's been in place even before I joined um, as a director of the Office of New American. That's incredible. I mean, that th those sort of actions, um, you, you have increasingly seen them uh, almost exported, for lack of a better term, across multiple cities where um, the, the the emphasis of, of wanting to make sure that that sanctuary status is preserved, the emphasis on making sure that, um, you know, a refugee from another country has uh, access to the resources, to the housing, to the services that that city can best pro can provide, all of these different investments seem to be ramping up in interesting and creative ways. Um, although I would argue that the, the legal fund that um, you all 
have stood up in the city of Chicago is quite unique and distinct from other cities around the country. Uh, and yet, as you know, and as you mentioned a moment ago, um, you work alongside some of your peers and counterparts um, that, that head up immigration offices in other municipalities around the country. What are those conversations like? Is it a matter of trying to export or import best practices, or do they need to be tailor-made for the unique demographic makeup of that locality or city? Well, certainly, we're always talking about best practices. Uh, so certain certain cities, based on the way that their funding infrastructure works, or perhaps because their population is, the target population is larger. Like, for example, New York has a larger immigrant population than we do, but they're also a bigger city um, in terms of population overall. So their funding for their, um, what what is, their legal protection fund, uh, I believe it's called NIFUP, which is a kind of, um, I'm, our colleagues in New York can tell you what that acronym stands for. But so certainly they, are, they have more funding um, to do this, to achieve the same goals. But as we were creating our legal protection fund two years ago, I was talking to New York to learn what their best practices have been. How do you, how, do, how does one look at a program like this um, as in its inception as we're establishing it and really get the best bang for our buck. And we found a, a system that allows us to um, reach uh, the, the community that we seek to serve um, through, for example, this model of uh, what we call here a community navigator program, uh, which are an our other partnering organization, the Resurrection Project here in Chicago, does a really fantastic job of honoring those individuals who are sort of super volunteers in their communities and um, and have access, right? Have a reputation of working really closely with their um, with their community and are a trust a trusted source of information, and so they end up becoming ambassadors to the Legal Protection Program. And uh, so, if, say for example. The community navigator is having a conversation with um, folks in their uh, in their community and through uh, meeting or what have you, and that individual shares because it's vulnerable and and it's uh, it's information that that those those of us who don't have um, permanent or um, the ultimate form of legal relief, which is otherwise known as as citizenship, it's not it's typically something that's taboo. People don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about this. So it's important that they talk to someone who's trusted. And so we have community navigators through our legal protection fund that are those trusted individuals and that can refer then that individual to the right resource, which is that immigration attorney. So certainly there is um, always a conversation around best practices. What are things that LA is doing? What are things that New York is doing? What are things that San Francisco, Boston, et cetera, are doing um, from, an in, uh, from a policy perspective? that we could be then replicating? Um, and then what are things that Chicago is doing that we can share with some of our cities that are now trying to figure this out in terms of um, creating a uh, creating systems that are outside of sort of the um, you know symbolic gestures, but real policies that can protect our immigrant and refugee populations. So there, there's that export com- component that's happening. And then, um, you know, at the same time, there's uh, there's a little bit of, I think you had asked about the um, sharing of best practices, and then you had asked the second part of that. Could you refresh my memory, Vikram? 
Yeah, I was just curious whether, um, in addition to how you go about talking with other cities and investing in similarly situated programs, um, how much of that needs to be kind of nuanced or tailor-made for sure. the unique demographic yeah, makeup a, of each community? Yeah, that's a really, really good point because the thing is, again, as I was mentioning earlier, best practices are very helpful, and at the same time, all of us have our unique set of circumstances in our cities. And so, you know, um, the, this, uh, the way that we approach policies have to reflect the demand and the need of our target population. And so, for example, we may say, oh, this is a great idea. We should replicate it in Chicago. But if it doesn't make sense for at that time, um, given the landscape, uh, you know, whether it be the landscape that our um, population is facing, the political landscape, what have you, then it may not be the right fit at that time. And so there has to be a reconciliation between best practices and then the advice and counsel that we are given in our roles from our community stakeholders that we seek to serve. And so it's certainly got to be sort of uh, both of these elements have to work in tandem with one another. Otherwise, you one risks getting into a situation where we we just think it's a good idea, so we have to do it. It's got to. It, there has to be a both and, because um, then you know the the uh, implementation of these sorts of best practices will only really the, it hinges on the appetite, right? So like there has to be an appetite and an interest to to uh, recreate these best practices and the context is everything. So we have to, uh, so in my role, one, I, I'm always having to think about, you know, the, whether this best practice or this policy or this program is culturally relevant to the community that I seek to serve. I, I wanted to, to get a sense of, of how you actually, you personally feel empowered with that very last phrase that you mentioned, which is, you know, that community you seek to serve, specifically because um, you yourself uh, are an immigrant in this country. You, you were born and raised in Venezuela. Um, you are also the, the child of Pakistani immigrants um, who moved uh, out, out to the U.S. Um, and, or sorry, the, the, and then you eventually moved out to the city of Chicago. Um, how important is it, particularly at this time where, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, um, all too often we are scoffing at people who might look a certain way um, and be from a country that we don't necessarily recognize, that we don't necessarily know of, or we make assumptions around where their backgrounds may be worlds apart from where my background is. How important is it to create a sense of, of empathy and understanding of individuals in roles like yours? Uh, put another way, um, a lot of immigration policy that we see set um, currently uh, by those in the, inner, the innermost circles of the White House uh, of this administration um, or those that are even implementing some of these policies in kind of the more outer rungs of the Department of Homeland Security or ICE or other entities, even the State Department, um, we see and we continuously uh, hear profiles about the look and background of those individuals. You know, notably, we see that one of the president's closest advisors, Stephen Miller, uh, grew up in Los Angeles, ostensibly a fairly, uh, or Southern California, ostensibly a fairly uh, diverse region in its own right. Uh, but 
always sort of uh, told stories and, and, and sort of echoed and telegraphed practices and interests that seem to butt against this very notion that America is a diverse fabric. Uh, meanwhile, we have um, individuals like you who are also opining on immigration policy, um, who have diverse and varied, varied backgrounds. Um, we even have Dr. Lopez, who is your counterpart um, out of the city of L.A., um, who has a diverse background herself. Uh, we're at a point in which this this the sets of policies that get established seem to be being established by individuals that maybe have empathy based off of their own childhood, their direction, their background, their lineage. Um, is that going to be more and more important to have individuals in the role that can speak to that community, as you mentioned, because they happen to come from that community? Or is there a better hope for an America or a city of Chicago for tomorrow in which regardless of what your upbringing was or what color um, of your skin is or where your parents were raised, that we might be able to attract to kind of sensible policies that look out for community members along the way? Yeah, I would say it is 100% absolutely important. I see a great deal of value as being someone who is an immigrant and serving immigrants. It's far too long that we have populations like ours have been at the receiving end of policies as opposed to being a part of the policy shaping process. And so I think it is absolutely crucial that, you know, you know I, I, I say this and I know it's sort of a cliche, but I think it's so important to emphasize it in con when we're having conversations like this is the truth of the matter is that, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And our, um, you know, disenfranchised populations across the board, uh, um, vulnerable communities, if, if there is if there is not a seat that it, that is granted to to you at the table, then then we again we run the risk, which has been happening for far too long, that we are simply at the receiving end of these policies and the the policies that are being shaped that affect our lifestyle, affect our livelihood, and so I see it for myself that it's it's certainly very important because I remember going through the naturalization process. And I remember um, shortly after I had graduated from uh, from my bachelor's, completing my bachelor's degree here in Chicago at Loyola University, I had a conversation with my mentor and supervisor where I was working uh, at, right after I had graduated, which is a immigrants rights coalition in Chicago, based in Chicago called the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. And one of the things that, as we were having a conversation, <clears throat> Chicago has a rich history of community organizing. And so I had started my first job as a community organizer. And um, one of the things we had talked about is reflecting on what was, what was our pathway towards citizenship. And so he had challenged me to think through that more intentionally. And what I came to recognize is that there was a great deal of privilege that was afforded to me in the process of becoming a citizen. And what and why is it that it's so so challenging for someone who I think has every right, if not more right, to become a citizen? And there's so many barriers that are placed along the way for individuals who have, again, every right to be able to own that ultimate form of legal protection, which is to become an American citizen. And so, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of value um, from my personal standpoint 
of knowing what that process is like and then approaching it as such when we are in a position uh, um, you know, to, to create and to think through how we can holistically and comprehensively serve uh, populations, like in, in my case, the immigrant and refugee population. And, and think about when we, when we throw out terms like immigrant integration, but what does genuine, comprehensive you know, immigrant integration look like? And, and to your other question, Vikram, I would just say, you know, I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that even if someone who doesn't necessarily share my background or um, share uh, the background of an immigrant but is in the role of uh, serving this particular population, that, that we can, with time, get to a place where there is a, a deeper level of understanding that the implications of rulemaking, of, of uh, creating such laws um, that have such an overarching impact that there's a real thoughtfulness that um, that is utilized when creating these policies, and that thoughtfulness is not only guided by self is is actually not guided by self-interest whatsoever. That it is guided by by feedback, by conversations, by dialogue, by most importantly experience. Right, like experience is everything. I, I think that, you know, um, one thing I wanted to share with you earlier, because I think it's important to share stories and anecdotes as, as we're thinking through the landscape um, and, and as you're um, creating this platform to discuss what, what in fact is, you know, American enough is that uh, back in January 2017, when the first iteration of the travel ban came down, there was a thousand people that deployed to the O'Hare International Airport in Chicago, myself included, and it was, uh, you know, it was a, a very unique, very distinct site that demonstrated um, just what it, what what a city that stands together looks like. I uh, I went there, and you know, there was complete mayhem um, because there was so much confusion around what was actually taking place. Uh, we had heard about this restrictive policy that Trump had throw, put, put down the pipeline, and, and of course, confusion ensued as a result of it. 150 lawyers deployed and created a legal clinic right there at O'Hare Airport, and 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 I um, and our office worked very closely so that they would have a, a place um, for the for the significant portion of 2017 to stay there and help individuals who are very confused about what was taking place uh, as it relates to the travel ban implications. Uh, Mayor Emanuel came um, to the airport that same weekend as well. It was a weekend when this had all um, taken place. And so, you know, I think that for someone who perhaps has been in America, in the United States for generations, but to feel that need, uh, you know, that I have to be at the airport right now on a Saturday night uh, you know, that, that experience is going to speak volumes. And I think if that individual then later down the road is in a place where they're affecting, uh, um, you know, policies or are doing, are, are a part, part of a process uh, that would affect a population that is vulnerable, that that experience will be um, highlighted, you know, in their memory. And so certainly there is a there's a lot, I, I believe, that's happening um, given the time that we're in, and it's allowing there to be a great deal of solidarity as well. 
Yeah, that that sense of solidarity um, is an interesting one because we have, for, for almost since inception of this country, really celebrated our differences as what makes us strong. Um, you see time and time again in moments of both kind of tragedy for the country as well as vulnerability, as well as strength, uh, leaders um, at sort of the highest level, but also local leaders, community organizers, um, folks that individually decide to show up at Chicago O'Hare or at LaGuardia or at SFO, um, all of them seem to want to celebrate the fact that the biggest thing that makes us as a country strong is that we can learn from one another, mm-hmm. that we can trade our values with one another. And perhaps as we do that, we we realize that there's both glory in those differences, but also maybe the daylight and those differences aren't too vast as we might be one to assume without having those conversations with one another. Right. Um, I'm curious, you know, you had mentioned earlier that even the very notion of speaking about um, what is American or maybe even the refrain um, American um, can be charged in its own right. Um, Perhaps that's charged based off of assumptions of where the country stands now or where it's always been or where it's going. But I was curious if you could unpack a little bit of what you meant by um, the notion of America and its identity? Is it something that we should still collectively try and bend the long arc of justice towards that sense of freedom that America has always stood for? Or is it important to understand that even beneath being American, um, we should only celebrate it insofar as it doesn't necessarily create divisions of who is in that camp or on that team versus those who aren't? Yeah, certainly. I think, you know, the... The question as such is a question more so perhaps of semantics. I mean, the truth of the matter is that as someone who studied Latin American studies in undergrad, this was something that I was challenged on quite a bit, is this this um, uh, taking taking over, if you will, of the of the um, phrase American as to uh, as to define it as, America is only an identity afforded to people who are in the United States. And so the reason why I mentioned that more so is because what what ends up happening is that we um, eliminate or perhaps in using this term um, that we eliminate the uh, those of our, our partners in South America and Central America who also would uh, ascribe to be American, but um, but somehow in I think what happens in our mind is that no, but America is American is only for those people who are in the United States, and so uh, we just don't have a comparable term in English. In Spanish, there is a term that would be uh, translated as United Statesian, and we just there's just it doesn't sound good. So it's like there's just no kind of uh, real way of describing or identifying it that way. But nevertheless, you know, given that, so um, with with that cultural understanding, uh, my parents came to the United States to realize that American dream. And there are there are thousands upon thousands and millions of individuals who came, who have come, who continue to come, who even given this current political landscape, you know, um, in conversations that I have um, with extended family members or or with um, friends and family that don't live in the United States, there's still a very serious um, burning desire to realize this American dream. And so 
the American uh, dream are the the aspirational goals that that individuals seek to realize in the country of the United States should never be restrictive uh, based on background, you know, and that anyone can can really be able to claim that identity. It's regardless of, you know, whether or not there's papers that reinforce that or not. I mean, that is, that's, that should be standard. Um, that should be, uh, that should just be something that is understood. Uh, I think there's a constant question around uh, whether in fact, there's always a challenge around this, right? Like I myself as a Muslim American, there's always been a question around that too um, for, for really since I can remember since coming to this country is like, well, how can you be both a Muslim and an American? Well, certainly these are not contradictory identities. In fact, they're, they're complementary. And so there's a number of um, individuals, you know, who, who are faced with that challenge based on societal uh, norms or societal understandings. And I think it is, it is incumbent that we challenge that further and recognize that this is something that anyone who feels connected to this identity should have every right to claim it for their own. Yeah, and I and I think that 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 very right to be able to claim it seems to be um, not only on display among individuals like you who are heading up and overseeing um, that very sense of how to navigate America at this point in time, particularly if you feel you need access to resources, um, but it's something that cities across the country um, are are standing up to try and provide that very sense, uh, sorry, same sense of identity because at this moment in American history, um, when individuals in this country, um, fellow Americans, those that are new Americans, or those who have long been here, if they in any well, any way, shape, or form feel like that very thread of our identity or what that flag or country stands for is shifting in real time, then we would need more individuals like yourself who are able to understand where individuals come from and offer them the rights and resources and frankly recourse um, when they feel like they need it so that way they can hold on to that identity um, and pursue it in a way that really understands that cities and individuals and communities are still looking out for them and it's not all just what one might hear in the headlines. So Simi, thank you so much for your service um, to the city of Chicago and frankly this country and thank you for joining American Enough. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.